Ness uh, is uh, an author. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, Enduring Community, um, that some of you might have used in small groups or read. It's a benefit of how we relate to the church and what the big kind of view of the church is. And uh, he's an amateur photographer. Um, and uh, you can check out his stuff online there. And then he's also a very amateur southern photographer. And you can ask him about that anyway. But we're blessed to have him. Come on up, Les. Thank you. Can I use this? Can I use this right here? Oh, no, I got it. No, 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 I'm all right. Still a little jolted from the time change, see? You see, when the sun travels around the earth, it creates this problem with time because the earth, the, the, the earth is, is round, see? And so when the sun moves across, you've got to account for that by what we call time zones. And if you leave Mississippi to come to Georgia, you have to go forward an hour. So, let's pray. I'm just kidding. That'll be our lesson for the weekend. I was late, okay, because I forgot about the time jump, time zone. <laughs> okay. Some of you have never been on an REF Fall Conference and been like, is it always this disorganized? Is this the way they do it? And my answer to that would be, you have no idea. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure. I was just uh, trying to remember uh, when it was uh, I uh, first came on an RUF Fall Conference, and I think it was about 19 years ago. Uh, when I was in seminary and got a chance to come up and be with a group of folks uh, in Mississippi. Um, and I, I, I want to reiterate what Roy was trying to say is this is, um, um, it, it, this, is the, this is the safest possible place where you could be to evaluate the truth claims of Christianity. It doesn't exist on your campus, I promise you, in an atmosphere that's not threatening, among people who understand what it's like to have doubts, among people who understand what it's like to wrestle with things. In other words, we don't want to assume anything about the fact that you've, become on a, that you've come on a religious retreat, that any of this is either A, familiar to you, or B, something that you buy into, or C, that you're not struggling with. We're all in that spot. And that's the reason why coming away for a weekend to ask those kinds of questions is really, really important for us. And it reminds me when I was at the University of Memphis years ago and talking to a student who had had what I think is a fairly uh, common experience. He had showed up at college coming from a very typical religious southern background. And since we're sort of in a religious southern context, why not sort of share this sort of story? He was the kind of guy who grew up and simply came to college, naive as he uh, could possibly be, but had found himself engaging in activities in college that he always said in high school he would never have a part of. Now, what he was doing is not the point. It's not the point of my discussion this weekend. The bottom line was he was disappointed in himself. And so he came to a person who fancied himself a campus minister, <laughs> myself, um, and I'm sure that for a, an uncomfortably long period of time, I uh, sort of brain dumped on this young, uh, poor uh, sucker something of some religious import while he sort of gratefully sort of nodded and smiled. 
And then, you know, after I realized that I was finished, he decided he would ask me this next question. And it is a question with which I have wrestled <clears throat> for years. One that sort of planted itself in my mind that I really honestly am not sure that I've even now come to an easy way to answer the question. This is what he said. He said, Les, look, I appreciate all of your religious learning. This is all very interesting for me. He said, to be honest with you, though, my problem is not with what you're saying. I can look at the information that you're giving me about Jesus, about perhaps his death on a cross, uh, uh, perhaps his sinless life. I might even be able to buy into the fact that he rose again from the dead. That's not my problem. The information I can agree is true. What I'm having trouble with less is I don't know how to believe it. Have you ever thought of that question? I'm fascinated by that question because I love to ask people, if someone came to you and said, I want you to try to define for me what it means to believe something. Try to answer that question without using sort of a derivative of the word believing. I, I usually get two reactions. Reaction number one is what most of your reaction is, which is utter confusion, which is, are we really going to talk about this this week? The other one is more condescension, where people look and say something along the lines of, oh, let's come on. Belief, nothing could be more obvious. To believe something just means to trust it. Oh, but see, trust actually is a sort of derivative of the word belief. You try to define them, you just use the other word. Now, some people say, well, you know what it means. It means to sort of have, have confidence in something. Uh, but see, the Latin root of confidence, confide. Fide is from the Latin word meaning faith. What does it mean to believe something? If someone pressed you to ask, because there is no question that Christianity is a religion of believing. I think we can establish that fact, that there's nothing more central to grasping and understanding Christianity than saying it's about believing. And so we kind of probably ought to get this one down if we're ever going to make <coughs> excuse me, any advance in the Christian life. There were three uh, young men living in a foreign country, actually exiles in a foreign country, who were of deeply devout and religious faith. They were Hebrew Jewish people and had found themselves in captivity with the rest of their people in Babylon. The king of which was something of a megalomaniac and decided to erect a statue in the center of the city asking everyone when the music began each day to lean over and bow down to this great statue. But these three young men make a decision that to do so would be in violation of their most fundamental beliefs about life. And they have a confrontation with this king. The three men are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're confronted by King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Actually, I'll begin in verse 13, because the story is kind of interesting there. You get enough set up there from verse 13. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought... So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to each of them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Hmm. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than it is usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Hmm. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, if there is something of you in this text and passage, our need to hear it is greater than whatever we have brought into this room that might distract from it. And so we ask for your grace this evening as we consider this passage, as we consider these people and the example that they give to us about what it means to believe. Grant us then perhaps... Glimpses into that tonight, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. To believe something is the cultural assumption about why you have a good life or whether you have a bad life. You agree with me on that? Is there any more fundamental cultural assumption than the reason why good things happen to people is because they believed? I was schooled on this very early, just this week. We were flipping through stations, and thank goodness for places like TBS and uh, USA and other networks that will show reruns of the Star Wars trilogy. The second of which, of course, Empire Strikes Back is by far the best of all the trilogy. There is no discussion about that. I refuse to have it anymore. <laughs> Central to that movie, in the center part of that movie, is the young hero Luke Skywalker, my son's namesake. I'm kidding about that, actually. Um, 
Luke, I am your father. How many times can you say that and it still be funny? Um, but looking at, um, at, at his, sitting there at the feet of the small little uh, uh, the Jedi master Muppet, Yoda, who's training Luke to understand that the, Luke, that the force is around us. It, 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 it inhabits all living things. It even surrounds the space around your wrecked spaceship. And so Luke makes an attempt to sort of stretch out his hand and you know, blink his eyes a little bit and the ship sort of starts to rise up out of the swamp, but then as he fails, it falls back into the, into the swamp. And he walks back and looks at Yoda and says, You asked for the impossible. And so Yoda steps up to the side of the swamp and holds out his <laughs> three little knotty fingers, points at the spaceship, rises it up out of the swamp and sets it over on dry ground. And, of course, Luke Skywalker is absolutely incredulous. He walks up and stands around her, touches it. It's almost as if it's not real. Dory looks and says, I can't believe it. Remember what Yoda says? He says, and that is why you fail. The reason why the things in your life are not going the way in which they should is because you have not believed I have no idea who's going to win the World Series in a couple of weeks. No idea. Root for whoever you like. But I can almost guarantee you that at some time during the post-game interview, during either the, the championship series or during the World Series, some news reporter will stick the microphone in the victor's face and say, so tell us, coach, how did you do it? And he'll look at that microphone and say what every single athlete says. You know what? From the very beginning, we never stopped believing that we could do it. Why do good things happen to you? Because you believed. You hear people, and, and of course the, the, the religious people have picked up on the same theme. Even church-going people have picked up on the exact same idea. had a conversation with a young man years ago who walked into my office bouncing, grinning from ear to ear. Which surprised me. It surprised me because the evening before at RUF, he had confided in me about how the last two weeks had been a living hell since his girlfriend had broken up with him. He was devastated. So when he bounced into my office, grinning from ear to ear, I was a little surprised. And I said, what in the world happened? He said, last night, we got back together again. And I was excited for him. I said, congratulations, that's great. He said, you know, honestly, it's better than you know. He said, because Les, from the very beginning, I never stopped believing that God was going to give her back to me. And he did what I asked him. It's been 15 years ago since a guy named Wade Clark Roof, a sociologist out in California, wrote a book called A Generation of Seekers, in which he said that 8 out of 10 Bible-believing conservative evangelical types the kinds of people that would come to religious retreats on an October weekend, believe in what he calls some form of possibility thinking, that anything is possible if you just believe. If that is your way of thinking, I wonder if passages like the one we just read don't trouble you a little bit. Because when we look and see what happens to these guys, we think to ourselves, now this is the kind of faith that we need, the faith of the Old Testament saints, who, in the face of horrible pressure, even death by fiery furnace, 
believed that God was going to rescue him. Didn't you find yourself getting sort of pumped up during that middle part? You know, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace, O king. What's curious, though, is the first three words of verse 18. But if not... Wait a minute. It's a little curious, isn't it? Why would these men admit to a moment of weakness that God might just not do, might not do what they want him to do? Did God cave? Did they cave? Look, y'all, I'm simply wanting to suggest to you this weekend that biblical faith is something that we must grasp. And most people think that faith is getting God to do what they would like for Him to do. But that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not getting God to do what you want Him to do, but biblical faith is actually faith in God. And I hope in the next 15 minutes to try to illustrate for you that that's not just another empty theologism. What do we mean by that? Look, I think for most people, they wrestle with one of two sides of faith. Some people come up and they begin by thinking about faith as if it's an issue of a matter of quantity. That is, how much faith that you have. In other words, you have sort of an idea out there, something that you want, and God expects from you, in order to get that thing, for you, as it were, to pump enough faith nickels into the sort of celestial uh, vending machine in the sky, and out comes the life that you want. A number of years ago, I was listening to an NPR uh, uh, report on uh, the book that had been written years ago called Salvation on Sand Mountain. It's actually just a few miles north-northwest of here. And they were interviewing these people who were snake handlers. There are still places in our world where in order for you to come to a worship service, (laughs) not the most popular of worship services, I might add, You have to demonstrate whether or not you are really believing by coming forward and handling a poisonous snake. And, of course, the NPR interviewer was just oozing with condescension through this whole experience and interviewed one young sort of individual who was quoted as saying something like this. He said, well, if you get bit, that means there's something wrong. You can hear everybody on the outside thinking, yes, there's something wrong. And I remember condescending to that guy thinking, ha, how primitive. But then all of a sudden it occurred to me, how many times do I find myself in similar situations? When was the last time that you were feeling crunched by life? And you cried out to God, God, help. She said she wants to break up with me. God, help. I'll fail if I don't pass this test. God, help. I need this interview. But at the very moment that the prayer occurs to you, have you ever done an immediate, one-week spiritual inventory? Well, what have I done this week? Can I even ask for this? Wait a minute. Uh, There was a couple of nights ago. That was not a good night. And suddenly we set it aside. Haven't we done the same thing? I've talked to so many college students who in high school were sold a version of Christianity that went something like this. Come to Jesus and get a better life. And when they got to college, things got really, really hard, as most of you know. 
And their reasoning was very sophisticated. They said, if I'm not getting the things that I want, either I'm not putting enough faith nickels into the celestial vending machine in the sky, or there is no celestial vending machine in the sky. And so they jettison him from their thinking and from their imagination. And they suffer what they might call a crisis of faith. That's the first question. Some people think faith is a matter of quantity. Secondly, though, you get other people who say, no, no less. Actually, faith is really a matter of, of quality. That is, you've got to pray for the stuff that God wants. And as, as long as you pray for the things that God wants, then He gladly and happily grants them to you, right? We've got to figure out what it is that He wants. I mean, look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, what a wonderful witness it was to the entire pagan Babylonian world about the faithfulness of these people. That's why God gave it to them and granted their request is because they were asking for the right things. I used to think this way until I went to seminary. My second year of seminary, there was a man who came and... um, Uh, to the seminary that fall of my second year, who, in my opinion, was one of the best Christians I could ever imagine. When he came to the seminary, it was told from all around that he had left a Fortune 500 company, was an executive vice president doing extraordinarily well financially. He and his four kids had left everything to pursue gospel ministry and had come down to seminary to study the Bible and to learn. Within two months of being there, they got the diagnosis that his wife was stricken with cancer of the pancreas. When cancer strikes your pancreas, some of you know, that's very dangerous because it's so far on the inside of your other vital organs that you're always late in discovering it. And when you're late in discovering it, it typically has done its mess by the time it happens. And Karen was very far along in her cancer by the time they'd even discovered it. And I remember getting a note in my mailbox that week when we were to go as a last-ditch effort to pray for Karen in the chapel. Now, mind you, I'm gathered and surrounded by some of what remains to be the godliest people that I know. Still actually friends with many of them. And they brought Karen in, who by this time, after a few months, was sort of hobbling in. They placed her on a small sort of rickety chair in front of the entire assembly. And all of these men, my professors, gathered around her to do as the Bible says, to actually lay their hands on her and pray for God to heal her of her cancer. And I remember reasoning with myself as I sat there on that second row of the chapel, thinking, what a great opportunity. What an extraordinary example that this is going to be for the entire watching world. To see that when God's people give up everything to follow Him, even in the face of a cancer diagnosis, He comes through for them at the very last minute when no other doctor says they know what to do. Karen was dead two weeks later. And I remember walking around campus with this singular thought. I wonder if I was the weak link... In other words, thinking to myself, was I the one who was faltering? Was I the one who actually sort of made it wrong? And I remember thinking, why would God not grant something like that? Surely, praying for something like this would be within His will, right? Look, y'all, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. It's nowhere in this Bible 
Over and over again, you find the people of God who are without question pictures of the most faithful people going through some terrific suffering. You get these crazy stories about Paul praying three times to have this thorn in the flesh. We don't know whether that's a sickness, an illness, maybe a sin. But three times he prays and God looks and says, no, each time. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul on his numerous journeys is beaten and tortured in numerous places. There's a small little throwaway line in 2 Timothy 4.20 where Paul is instructing Timothy about my lead, about uh, 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 the, the little Trophimus. And he says, I left Trophimus sick in a city called Miletus. He left him sick. This is the Apostle Paul. The apostles were people who when their shadows would pass over sick people, it would heal them. But you left Trophimus sick, Paul? Why? <laughs> were you mad at him? Hebrews 11.32-37 mentions the heroes of the faith who had to go through horrible trials. The writer of which says, Of whom the world was not worthy, they suffered so much. But you know, the ultimate example is Jesus Himself, is it not? Who, when He gets to the very end of His rope, at the very nadir of His life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before He faces something that no one in this room understands, separation from His Father... Decides that he doesn't want to do it. You do realize that, don't you? Jesus did not want to go to the cross. And he asked his father if there was another way. And he looks and says, Father, please, would you let this cup... We actually know what that cup was from the Old Testament. It was a cup of God's wrath. He said, Father, will you let this cup pass from me? But... You remember how I finished that prayer? Not my will be done, but yours be done. My friends, that's the answer. Faith is not a matter of struggling with its quantity, pumping faith nickels in. Faith is neither a matter of quality, trying to figure out exactly the things that are going to be God's will that must be His will. Faith is a matter not of either of those things, but I would say it is a matter, first of all, of focus. It's not an issue of quantity. It's not an issue of quality. It's a matter of focus. I want this weekend to look at the question of what it means to believe. And I want to try to unpack illustrations, my favorite illustrations that I've collected along this little journey that I've made with this little topic. And my most favorite one has to do with the simple idea of a windshield. Faith, one minister said, is like a windshield. A windshield is meant by design to be looked through. You ever notice your windshield? I noticed my windshield. Last week, it finally happened. Had a car for a little over a year. And inevitably, you fall a little too close. You get a rock that spins up. Bam! Got one of those little... Nickel-sized circles on there that i got to go get fixed. Here's the funny thing about an imperfection on a windshield. If you get too preoccupied with the imperfection on the windshield, you're, you're much more likely to wreck your car. <laughs> because the windshield was not intended to be looked at. It was intended to be looked through. My friends, what if faith is exactly the same way? 
What if faith is not a mechanism that is intended to be focused upon, but rather is something that is to be redirected at the only thing that it really was intended to be directed at? Namely, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three men running through the woods. It's a winter's day, and they have come across a bear. And they're racing through the woods to get away from the bear. But suddenly they stop at the edge of a frozen river. The first man looks and says, I know these woods. I've been coming here since I was a child. I know exactly what time of the season it is. I know what the temperature was this weekend. I know exactly how thick that ice is. I'm going. And he scampers across the river safe to the other side. The second man looks and says, I don't know, that other guy had it going on. I think it's okay. It certainly looks okay. It certainly looks reasonable. But I'm honestly not all that sure. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure I've got a choice. And so I'm going to go. And he scampers across the ice safe to the other side. The third man looks and says, I'm done. There's no way that that ice is going to hold me. The first guy was okay. The second guy seemed like he cracked it. I am sure to go through. But to be honest with you, I would almost rather die of freezing to death in a river than getting mauled by a bear. So he scampers across the river and lands safe on the other side. Three men. Entirely different experiences of faith in the ice. But was it, the, was it their faith that saved them? Or was it the strength and the thickness of the ice beneath them that carried them on to safety? My friends, my premise this weekend, and I just want to introduce it to you tonight, is that it is the nature of your believing to attach itself to something, some pursuit some aim, some ideal. And in Christianity, some person. And it's only when it's attached to that person does it ever issue forth in salvation for you. My friends, because the promise of Christianity and the promise of Christian's faith is not that it is the cessation of your problems, But that in going through life's struggles, you will never go through it alone. King Nebuchadnezzar discovered this the hard way, didn't he? Why is it that they keep repeating Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the time you get to the sixth time reading it, you start to think, I think we got the names of the guys. The author is repeating the names so that you understand how strange it was when Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, but I see four men. And the fourth is like a son of the gods. He was close. My friends, in the furnace of pain and of potential suffering, the promise was that Jesus would be there in their midst, working out salvation on His terms, not on theirs. I'll finish with this story. A number of years ago, I came to a church to preach on Sunday morning, and believe it or not, was an hour early. Um, (laughs) Campus ministers were like, what? I was early. They actually changed the time on me. That's why I was early. 
And there was a young lady there who had also missed the time as well, and it turns out that she'd been involved in RUF at Vanderbilt. And I said, oh, Vanderbilt, that's great. I said, how has your time been since you graduated from school? And she said, to be honest with you, it's not so good. She said, my best friend in life is dying of a terrible disease, and it's breaking my heart. And I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, well, if you want to read about it, her mother is writing a blog every week to describe her experiences of what it's like to lose her daughter. For the next six months, I was riveted every Friday afternoon to read these journal entries by this woman who was losing her daughter to this horrible disease. This is the last journal entry that she did after Megan died. The title of the blog is The Chinese House of Pizza. (laughs) She said, I'm traveling through a rural highway in South Carolina, and my husband and I have driven past a sign. The building was uninspired with no cars in the gravel parking lot. My husband and I laughed at the images that the words created. Pizza with bamboo shoots, wontons stuffed with mozzarella, sweet and sour anchovies. Nothing sounded particularly appealing. I have a sneaky idea at some kind of marketing ploy, get the parents in for Chinese and offer pizza for the kids, something for everyone. But I have such conflicted mental taste buds that I cannot appreciate the creativity of the proprietor. This was certainly not what I wanted for lunch. Even Duke's barbecue sounded more digestible than hot and sour pizza. Isn't it funny how we have ideas about food combinations that makes it hard to adjust our mental palate? We balk at trying something that offers new flavor experience, like roadside vegetable stands that offered so many colors of heirloom tomatoes. Beautiful to admire, but I don't want to eat a purple tomato. Tomatoes are red, and I like bacon with eggs. But someone reminded me that when she studied in Costa Rica, the daily breakfast was eggs with black beans and onions, which she grew to appreciate. Sometimes we're forced to look at things in new ways. In June of 2007... We were looking at illness in frighteningly new ways. We were coming to the realization that our daughter Megan was seriously ill. She had been tested for everything imaginable and was diagnosed with the worst of the unimaginable. Crutzfeld-Jacob disease, a terminal disease that is extremely rare and affects mostly older people. Even her doctor tried desperately to make some treatable diagnosis fit her symptoms, but nothing made sense. We looked with unbelieving heads and hearts at what had been put before us. It was an awful combination with the bitter taste of death. Stunned with disbelief, we brought her home so that we could wait for a miracle. The words of Scripture held me together. I believed God would cure my daughter. I trusted His timing as I claimed His promises. I could wait. Others prayed, and together we waited, watched, prayed, and pleaded. And somewhere in the waiting, the focus shifted from what I wanted to what God wanted. I don't know where or how that mysteriously occurred. God did it with grace and love while I kicked and screamed. Specific passages such as Psalm 91 gave me the hope that God would for sure provide His angels to protect Megan, that she would be sheltered from the storm under God's feathers. I thought that meant she would get well. And then she died. And the same verses transformed in meaning. Because God did raise Megan up on angels' wings and take the pestilence from her. 
He allowed her to watch him destroy the disease as he rescued her. I am disappointed that God did not give Megan a longer life for me. But learning to align with God's will, listen, has provided a new level of trust. I did receive His will as I gave up. Every night while Megan was waiting for God to rescue her, we prayed, Thy will be done. Did we mean what we said? Did we trust the meaning? If so, there is freedom in this life. And Scripture helps us to understand. But there are some days when words can be as perplexing as the Chinese house of pizza. They might not make sense. And trust is the only thing to do, especially when you're hungry. Maybe we should have taken another look at the menu. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, perhaps there are those in this room who are in the midst of experiencing heartache that they don't even know how to describe to other people. And all the while, there's a terrible voice in their head haunting them with whether or not they can believe, with whether or not they can stay in. And yet, Father, that that spinning wheel of frustration, that sort of endless loop can be far more hurtful when we don't realize what it's really calling us to do. Lord Jesus, maybe before we begin this weekend, if you would begin by purging from our minds false ways of understanding what it means to believe you, perhaps we'd be better off to listen better in the rest of the weekend. Maybe, Father, to look at our Christian life and life in general in entirely new ways. Would you do that? Make our weekend worthwhile, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.